Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brothers in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking... If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord, and moreover, he is behind us. Likewise, he instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease him with the presents that go ahead of me. Afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel for saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew 
of the thigh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, as a boy, and I was remembering this week as I, I spoke to someone that asked me what sports I played, I, I grew up playing lots of sports. My parents had us running every which way, and, and pretty much any sport that my sister and I wanted to play, my parents would invest us in for a time to see how we did and, and what we liked, and I pretty much wanted to play every sport I could, except for one. Whenever I met people that wrestled, because we breed very small children in the Batsik family, I thought, that's a sport I don't ever want to do. And, and so I, I avoided wrestling. I avoided people that wrestled. I stayed as far away from wrestling as was humanly possible. And I knew so very little about wrestling because I cared so very little about wrestling that it wasn't until I was in my early 20s. I was with a friend, and we were walking down the streets of Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, we were talking to someone, and my friend said, are you a wrestler? And he said, yes, I am. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. How did he know he was a wrestler? And we walked off, and I said, how did you know he was a wrestler? And he said, I saw his ear. I saw the cauliflower ear, and I said, wow, I never knew that. I stayed as far away from wrestling as was humanly possible. So I've never learned that those who wrestled had marks of the wrestling, indelible marks that they had given years of their life to wrestling. Now, as I thought about that, and as we come to this passage, which is the only recorded act of wrestling in the Bible— and a supremely important passage for us to consider, it is good for us to see that Jacob has been wrestling his whole life. Jacob was a wrestler. He was wrestling in the womb, wasn't he? He was wrestling with his brother in the womb. And then he was wrestling with his brother to take the blessing of God away from him. And then he was wrestling with his father, to deceive his father for that blessing. And then most recently, we've seen that he was wrestling with his uncle Laban, that the entirety of Jacob's life was a life of wrestling. It was a life of him trying to gain the blessing and to gain security by wrestling with those around him. Jacob would not be a number two person. Jacob would be the best wrestler that Jacob could be. And now as we come here and we've seen Jacob leaving Laban's house and finally wrestling himself away from Laban, as it were, we see that there is one more great trial, one more great experience of wrestling that God has seen fit for Jacob to have to go through. Jacob will have to wrestle again with Esau. Remember, Jacob has been separated from Esau for 20 years. He had left because Esau had vowed to kill his brother for what he did to him. Jacob had left at his mother's command. Jacob feared his brother and knew that his brother would surely come after him and would surely destroy him. And so he fled, as we've seen over the last several chapters. He had fled to his uncle. He had gained his wives there. He had gained his children there. He had gained massive possessions there. And then he had decided, it is time for me to go home. The Lord had appeared to Jacob and had said that he should go back now to the place of blessing and the land of promise, the place where God had said that he would do Jacob good. And so we've seen Jacob leave. And as we come into this chapter, we're, we're going to see several things. There's, there's so much going on in Genesis 32. First, we're going to consider Jacob's great testing, that last great testing, that last great wrestling. And, and we're going to consider the wrestling. We're going to consider the great wrestling that he has to 
enter in on in this chapter. Then we're going to consider the great blessing and finally the great cost, the testing, the wrestling, the blessing, and the cost. We'll notice that Moses tells us in verse 1 that Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, it's important for us not to gloss over that. We might look over that and say, okay, God sent his angels to Jacob. Great. God appears to Jacob here and there. This is supremely important. Remember, Jacob had been 20 years not living in communion with God. 20 years not praying to God. 20 years serving his uncle. 20 years being deceived by his uncle. 20 long, hard years And God finally came to him in the last chapter and he tells his wife that God appeared to him and that God has said, I am going to bless you. You are under my grace. You are a recipient of my grace. I want you to go back with your wives. I want you to go back to the land of promise. And Jacob sets out on that arduous journey. He breaks himself free from Laban. And the very first thing that Moses tells us is that God's angels encamp around him and God, as he did for Elijah's servant Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 6, opens Jacob's eyes to see the whole heavenly host surrounding him. Now, don't miss this point. Remember, Jacob is undeserving of God's grace and mercy. Jacob doesn't deserve God's blessing and protection. Jacob has done nothing, nothing to merit the blessing of God. And yet God's blessing because of his grace looms so large over Jacob that God sends the entire host of his angels, the army of heaven, to surround him. John Calvin actually thinks that while there is an intimation in the Hebrew of Mahanaim, Mahanaim, that there is two camps, a division of camps, that it is more probable that that language here denotes that the angels encamped all around him in both sides. That God was going to protect Jacob on the journey back to the land of promise. God is going to protect Jacob as he follows the Lord by faith, as he does the difficult thing, and as he sets his heart on the eternal inheritance. God is saying, I will be with you. I will protect you. Trust me for your protection. Now, that's something we tend to forget as we go through trials, and we're going to see that Jacob forgets what we just read here in a second. As we we go through trials and we meet opposition and we face challenges and and we forget that the Lord is with us and we forget and we we fear. We fear. I had an experience recently where I preached um, and there was a number of unbelievers there and and there was a fear and a trepidation in my soul. And, And we forget that even if it were us and an army encamping to set themselves against us, God is with us. Isn't it interesting in 2 Kings 6, um, I think it's the Syrians are coming to get Elijah and Gehazi, or Elisha, and Gehazi, his servants with him, and, and Gehazi's afraid. He, he's like, oh no, we're trapped. We're trapped in the city. What are we going to do? You know, they're going to destroy us. And Elijah's just in there having a meal. You can look it up. He's just, he's in there, finishes his meal with praise that the Lord would open his eyes. Elijah, Elisha knew that the Lord was with him and knew that more are they with us than those that are against us. The believer is one that God wants to convince that he is with us when we face trials and challenges. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. 
God is convincing Jacob, giving him a taste of his blessing and protection and provision. Remember, the Lord had said to Abraham, Abraham, do not fear. I will be your shield. I will be your exceeding great reward. Here, God is fulfilling that promise for Jacob and saying, here is an army of angels encamping. Here is God's camp surrounding him. And yet Jacob goes into this last great trial, a trial that he has to go into, and he goes into it fearful. He goes into it not leading out of what God has just shown him, confident that God is going to protect him on his way, but fearful of what his brother's going to do to him. This is the last great test. Jacob must have this great wrestling with Esau. He must face his brother. For him to go back to the promised land, he must pass the spiritual test of the, the need for reconciliation with his brother, for the ability to trust God in the midst of his brother's hostility and enmity, to overcome his fear and anxiety, and to trust the Lord as he makes his way back to the promised land. And notice that as Moses unpacks this for us, he tells us that as Jacob enters in on this test, he sends messengers before him to Esau, and, and he tells them to say, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, I have many possessions now, and I'm sending to you in order to see if I find favor in your sight. Now, Jacob is fearful. We know that because Jacob tells us in his prayer to God that he's afraid of Esau. And instead of going forward to Esau himself, he sends his servants. And we'll see that, in fact, in this chapter, Jacob will send everyone ahead of him. So that even as he enters in on this test and he goes forward to meet his brother Esau, he is still wrestling with his own struggles. He's still wrestling with his own fears. He's still wrestling with his own his own. Um, deceitful ways in a sense. You know, there's an intimation of that because if you read this chapter and the next chapter and you said, well, look, I mean, Jacob gives Esau these huge possessions. He gives him all of these animals and all of these possessions as a peace offering. And he learns humility. He bows down before his brother. The one who had his whole life sought to be first learns to be last, learns to be a servant to his brother. And yet at the very front end of the test, he doesn't yet do that. It's as if Jacob is keeping back all his possessions. He doesn't want to give up any of those possessions yet. He sends his servants to find out, what is Esau's disposition toward me? Very interesting, isn't it? God is teaching Jacob in this what it means to become a servant even to those who hate him, to love those who despise him, to serve and to minister to those who would have it out for him. And Jacob is grappling with his own sin even as he goes forward into this test. And you'll note that in verses 6 through 8, the messengers come back and they say, we went to your brother Esau, he's coming to you, and there's 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Now, we don't know. At this point, it seems that Esau's probably still intent on killing Jacob. And his response is not one that's helping Jacob pass this test. He sends back, and the word is, I'm coming with a mighty small army. I'll meet you with my army. And Jacob becomes fearful, and he, he gets pressed down in that anxiety and that fear. And yet, as we focus on Jacob and we focus on God's grace to Jacob, we see that Jacob does, for the first time in his life, what he's supposed to do when he's fearful in the trial and the test. He goes to the Lord in prayer. 
What he does when he becomes fearful at this point, he doesn't scheme anymore. Isn't that interesting? The one who had spent his whole life scheming, he, he has nothing he can do. He can't scheme anymore. He sent messengers to his brother. He feels like he's done everything he could to scheme his way out of this. He cannot win this trial on his own. And so he goes to the only one that can help him pass this trial. And he finally does what he should have been doing for decades of his life since God called him. And he picks up in a very real sense where he left off when he saw the ladder set down from heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending, God essentially reconciling Jacob to himself and saying, trust me, I am now the God of redemption for you and I am bringing you to myself and I have made a staircase to glory through the Redeemer for you, Jacob. And now, so many years after, now in a place of desperation, Jacob turns to the Lord. And notice this, during this trial, he says, O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of the deeds and steadfast love of all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For only with my staff I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have come back to camps. Now, we could just take uh, Jacob's prayer. We could take the other verses after this, and you could preach an entire sermon on it. Jacob first turns to God and pleads with God based on his former mercies. He reminds the Lord of what he's done, that he has been God of Abraham and God of Isaac, that he is the God of the promise, that he has, he has already brought his mercies into this covenant family, that he has pledged and promised his mercies to his people. And, you know, when we are struggling in testing, when we are going through trials, whether it is with family members, coworkers, the world, our own sin, health needs, pain, anxiety, fear, marriage, whatever, the first thing we need to do is turn to the Lord and remember his previous mercies to us. The second thing Jacob does is he acknowledges his own unworthiness. Now, here's a man who has not acknowledged his unworthiness very much to this point. What he has done is he has asserted himself in every relationship at every point he has been smarter than the next. His mind has worked faster than most people to figure out a way to get through trials and to get ahead. And now Jacob is being humbled by God. And he says, and by the way, if you've never prayed this, go home and pray this. I am not worthy of the least of your mercies or of the kindness you have shown your servant. You see, the, the, the acknowledgement, the confession of a heart that has received God's grace is I am not worthy of your grace. I sometimes think as a pastor when um, I meet individuals in the church and I've known them for some time and, and um, uh, they seem like they're people of strong theological conviction. They, um, they may be people with strong gifts. Um, certainly they're, they're people of strong opinions. Um, and yet, how little I hear them say, I'm not worthy of God's mercy to me. It's very telling. It's very telling when you don't hear the people of God say, I am not worthy. And to say it from the heart. Not just to give verbal lip service to it. Jacob remembers first God's previous mercies, acknowledges how absolutely undeserving he is of God doing anything for him or having mercy on him 
in any way whatsoever. And then he prays and asks the Lord to protect him, to deliver him, verse 11. And then he goes back and he reminds God of his promise again. Deliver me from my brother. Bring me through this trial because you have promised. You have promised to build your church. You have promised to make the descendants of my grandfather and my descendants more numerous than the stars of the sea and multitude. He is believing the gospel. He is believing the covenant promises. Now, you know, there are, who knows? Couldn't even number how many books have been written on how to overcome anxiety, how to overcome fear. Oh, that we would just take Jacob's prayer and we would meditate on that. and We would make it our own. And we would say, I am going to do exactly like Jacob did. I am going to humble myself under the Lord. I'm going to call on the one that can deliver me. I'm going to remind him of his mercies. I'm going to confess my own unworthiness. I'm going to ask him for deliverance. And I'm going to remind him of his promises again. Because he is a God who has vouchsafed to us that he will fulfill his promises. And so Jacob enters in on this test. He comes up from prayer and and. He doesn't have a plan. You know, it's very interesting. He has a plan to send his messengers before him. He doesn't want to give up his possessions. And, and, um, and then he goes to the Lord in prayer, and you get a sense when he comes up from prayer that his heart is healed. And he takes a huge amount of his possessions. And he tells, he tells his servants to take these to Esau. You see, his heart has been set free. It's being set free as he acknowledges these things to the Lord. It's being set free from the grip of wanting to be first and best and to have the most and to lay hold of blessing in his own strength. And he is now showing incredible generosity to one that doesn't deserve it, to one who wants to murder him, to one who wants to do him incredible harm. He is giving his possessions as a token, as a sort of a peace offering. He has a reconciliatory spirit as he comes up from prayer. And yet, I just want to note this briefly, Jacob here is not entirely trusting the Lord and entirely where he should be. Very interesting. God is everywhere, just like he does in our lives. He is constantly putting these things into our lives to, to train us to trust him. And to learn what it means to trust him fully. I I sometimes get very frustrated with my own sin. The Lord delivers me from some trial, some difficulty, some particular sin. And I feel like, yes, I will trust the Lord now forever. And then there's another trial. And you buckle under it. And another difficulty. And you buckle under it. And another sin. And you fall into it. And God begins again to deal with you and to train you. And God is everywhere doing that. You know, this chapter really tells us that the Christian life is hard. Jacob now divides his people into two camps. He divides some of his wives and children and possessions over here and some over here. And he decides, well, if Esau comes and he attacks one, maybe we can flee with the other. He still hasn't learned. You know what's very interesting? Jacob already has two camps. He already has two camps. And he's forgotten about the camp of God who appeared to him at the beginning of this account. And he's forgotten that that camp is with his camp. And instead, he divides his people, and he goes forward to meet Esau. And yet he goes with certain uh, struggling and and certain amount of fear still, a desire to appease him and a desire to protect 
part of his own security. Now notice in verse 22 that we see really the great wrestling. And it doesn't seem to fit in this chapter because you would think uh, the beginning of this chapter and the next chapter, they go together. And then there's this section here. Jacob is now sending all of his two camps forward ahead of him with all of these possessions to Esau. And notice now we read the same night he arose and took his two wives. He crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them, sent them across the stream with all that he had. And verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, your first question is, who is this man? Where did he come from? Why does this suddenly just turn like this? What does this have to do with the account that we're reading and the account that we're going to pick up on right after this? And, and you see this great wrestling match. And here, obviously, is a prefiguration of the Son of God. Here is a, a theophany. Here is Yahweh coming, appearing in some sort of human form to Jacob. And, and we're told immediately that he wrestled with Jacob, that he took the initiative, that he came to Jacob when Jacob was alone, and he began to wrestle with Jacob. And as we continue to read this, we see the struggle, and we see the difficulty, and we see the trial, and we see Jacob is learning, and and, and this is the big point, Jacob is learning that his real wrestling is not with his brother, because that's what he thought, and that's what we think. When we go through the trials and the hardships and the difficulties, we think my real wrestling is with this person or this thing or this issue I'm dealing with or this issue in my home. That's the real wrestle. And God says, as he says to Jacob, no, the real wrestle is with me. He is teaching Jacob that what Jacob ought to be most concerned about is not with wrestling with Esau and prevailing, but wrestling with God and prevailing. God is teaching Jacob that he must still learn to lay hold of him in his strength. God is teaching Jacob that what he should be investing all of his focus in, as he's been teaching him all the way along in this, is that Jacob would learn to stop scheming, that he would learn to stop taking things into his own hands. Listen to this. This is magnificent. One theologian meditating. If you could imagine Jacob holding on to the Lord, this man that had came to wrestle him, and then wrestling all night, wrestling in this place of aloneness and darkness, and he's wrestling with the Lord. Listen to this. This this one theologian says, those hands that stole. By the way, this is one of the most powerful thoughts, so please don't miss this. Those hands that stole, those hands that plotted, those hands that grasped, Those hands that twisted are now wrestling with the hands of Almighty God. Think about that. Those hands that had grabbed his brother's ankle in the womb now have to wrestle with Almighty God. This writer says, and now those hands that came from the womb with something tightly held have absolutely nothing in them. He knows that he has nothing left in his hands. He has nothing left in those hands except what God the Lord puts there. And it's how God works. So long as I have something else in my plans, in my schemes, in my hands, other than his blessing, at his time, in his way, for his purposes, God is saying, you can't receive the fullness of my gracious blessing. God is teaching Jacob, if you are ever going to be anything in my kingdom, there must be nothing in your hand except my hands. 
God is teaching Jacob, if you're to be anything in my kingdom, there must be nothing in your hands except my hands. All of your planning and scheming must be emptied out of your hands, and your hands must be full of my purposes. I think that is marvelous. Because at the end of the day, not one of us has learned that lesson as we ought to have learned it. You know, we sing, and I love the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But you know what? It's not true. That's not true. Just like we sing, I surrender all. And every time we do, I want to say, I have not surrendered all. I want to surrender all. I want empty hands clinging to the cross. And God is emptying Jacob's hands. And he is saying, your hands must be filled with my hands. And your hands must be filled with me and with my blessing alone. Well, notice Jacob in this wrestling really uh, is, is uh, marvelous in his determination and his perseverance. You know, Jacob was not a weak man. Remember, Jacob had gained some strength. He was a mama's boy at the beginning of his life. And then he had gained some strength. Remember, he moves that big stone back when he sees Rachel, probably trying to impress her, but those shepherds couldn't move that stone. He had gained some strength. He is obviously a fairly strong individual. He had been working out in the fields. He had been working with livestock. He's not a mama's boy anymore. He has essentially tried to be more like Esau. And, and now he is wrestling with God, but, but God is letting Jacob continue on in this wrestle because God could have just obliterated Jacob just like he could us. You know, when we say, as I prayed earlier today, that we believe the Lord has not dealt with us according to our sins or punished us according to our iniquities, I wonder whether we really believe that and know that to be true. That when we say we're thankful that the Lord has been patient with us, I wonder if we really understand just how patient he's been with us. God could have just destroyed Jacob, but he enters into this with Jacob. And as Jacob wrestles with this man and is trying to gain the victory, and as Jacob wrestles all night, he is really overcoming several obstacles God's putting in front of him. Jacob could have said, that's it, I'm out. I'm going back, not to the promised land, I'm going back to Laban. Could have easily turned back. He could have said, why won't you just stop wrestling with me? Why can't you just give me an easier life? Why can't you just give me what I want? Why can't you just make me strong enough to do this? And yet God is strengthening Jacob in the battle with him. And Jacob perseveres. Jonathan Edwards has this really amazing sermon where he talks about the wrestling of Jacob. And, and he sets out four things that Jacob um, presses through, four obstacles to Jacob pressing through in his wrestling with God. He says first that he is, Jacob is wrestling through God opposing Jacob. I mean, there's a real sense in which God is against Jacob in this wrestle. He is showing him that while he's against him, he's also for him. God is showing that he is completely other than Jacob, that he is the Holy One of Israel. Jacob presses against God, seemingly opposing him. Edwards then says, Jacob presses through the trial of the length of time. We're told that it was all night, that it wasn't this short little wrestling match, that it went on all night until the break of day, that Jacob pressed through this trial and this difficulty. Edwards goes on to say the third thing is that Jacob pressed through this trial of having his thigh put out of joint. We're going to see that more. God wounds Jacob in the wrestle. 
And then fourthly and lastly, Edward says, there was the trial of Jacob's performance, his speaking to God to let him go for the day was yet breaking or God saying to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob holding on to God and detaining him and saying, I will not let you go until you have blessed me. Now you see this in the gospels. You see it with the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, heal my daughter. She's dying. And Jesus essentially says to her, it's not good to give the children's bread, the Israelites' blessings, to the little dogs, the Gentiles. Here's a woman. She's a Gentile. Jesus tells her, I'm not going to give you the blessing. And yet she presses through those. And she says, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table. You see it in blind Bartimaeus. He's crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus keeps passing him by. And he keeps crying out. And the crowds try to stop him. The crowds say, shut up. The Savior is coming. Be quiet. And he cries out all the more. And he cries out over the crowds until Jesus stops. And Bartimaeus wins the wrestling match and gets the mercy for which he is crying out to the son of David. And here Jacob is doing that very thing. He is wrestling with God and he is wrestling for the blessing. And he is learning that if he's ever to have blessing in his hands, he cannot do it in his own strength. Now, that is a lesson that we need to repeatedly learn. I wonder, and I want to ask you this morning, have you ever wrestled with God? And I mean that in your soul. Have you ever wrestled with God? Have you ever, have you ever poured your heart out to the Lord pleading with him for divine blessing? Have you ever cried out to him and said, I will not let you go until you give me redemption and mercy and spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ? You know, I think it's interesting. I actually think Jacob's experience here is, um, is typical of the believer's experience um, in, our, in our prayer wrestling with God. Um, I hope that you are someone that's done that. I hope that you do that. You know, we, we need to look at a passage like this, and we should, we should go home and we should say, I need to wrestle in my soul with the Lord. Because I've been filling my hands with everything else, taking my own life into, into my own possession, taking, putting my hands on everything and trying to gain it by myself and get my way and secure myself, and I haven't wrestled with the Lord and I haven't learned that it's his plans and his purposes. And then there is the great blessing. Uh, notice that uh, Jacob does get that blessing. He pleads with the Lord not to depart. And, and the Lord says to him, what is your name? Now, this is very important because for Jacob to get the blessing, it's not just about wrestling with the Lord and not letting him go. Jacob has to admit that he is a great sinner. The Lord says, what is your name? And he gets the name that he got at birth because he had deceived his brother and supplanted him in the womb. He gets the name Swindler, and he tells the Lord, my name is Deceiver and Swindler. He admits what his name is, and the Lord says, no longer will your name be Jacob, but your name will be Israel, Prince of God, because you have wrestled with God and have prevailed. Now, the blessing is that God has given Jacob the new name. And it's interesting because... That, that idea of when someone is, is redeemed by God, getting that new name is very clear in, in Genesis. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. But here Jacob doesn't become a derivation of that name. 
he is given an altogether new name. He is, in the words of Martin Luther, both a sinner and a saint. He is the swindler, and he is the prince of God. He is a picture of what all of us are when we've come to Jesus Christ and we've wrestled with God, and he's conferred that divine blessing on us. He is, in a very real sense, also a type of Jesus Christ. This is very important. Um, When we think about Israel, if you asked most of your friends and you went out of here and you said, what is Israel? They would say, well, it's the, the state over in uh, near the Middle East and reconstituted, I suppose you could say, in, in 1948. And, and if you asked a lot of people in the church, what is Israel? They'd say, well, they, they are God's people. They are God's covenant people. But before Israel was a name given to the old covenant church, it was given to an individual. It's very important. The first person to bear the name Israel is Jacob. And I think that's because Jacob prefigures and prepares us for the one who is the true Israel, who goes down into Egypt, comes out of Egypt, goes through the waters of baptism, into the wilderness, up on the mountain, down from the mountain, recapitulates all of Israel's history, and then himself is wounded and bruised in his wrestlings with God to gain the blessings of God to confer on his people. Jacob is preparing us for Jesus Christ. Now notice, as Jacob has received this blessing, as he prefigures the one who gives that blessing, notice that there is the great cost. And this is, this is where we'll leave off this morning. Notice that we're told at the end of verse 29, there God blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penuel, for I've seen God face to face, and my life has been deli- delivered. And then notice before this that the Lord touched, in verse 25, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then in verse 31, as he rose, he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. Now, what's the point of that? God had to touch something strong in Jacob's life and had to dislocate something strong in Jacob's life to reach Jacob's heart. God had to take away Jacob's strength. Remember, Jacob is a man relying on his strength, his plans, his ingenuity, his, his zeal, his wisdom, his scheming, his labors, his wisdom, all of it. And God has to show Jacob, in order for you to have my blessing, there has to be a visible mark that you have wrestled with me and that there has been loss, that it has been costly. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that I didn't know you could look at a person and tell if they wrestled or not. Now I know. Now I see cauliflower ear everywhere. And uh, make a point of letting people know that I know that. Hey, you wrestled. Um, I think in the same way, when someone has wrestled with God, there has been loss. God has, has done something to take away their strength. And it, it becomes evident to people. The godliest people I know I can look at them and I can say that person has suffered some kind of loss in their life. There has been a cost for their wrestling with God. Um, Samuel Davies is called the father of the Apostle to Virginia. He's one of the fathers of American Presbyterianism. Became the president of what is now Princeton University before Jonathan Edwards um, had a wife and she was pregnant 
They were in their early 20s, and she died before she gave birth. He lost his young wife and his child in the womb. And Davies went on to say, what have I to do now but to serve my Lord in the proclamation of the gospel? And I think the greatness of Samuel Davies is that there was great loss in his life. He wrestled with God, and there was great loss. And I'm sure if you had met Samuel Davies, you would have been able to see a limp in his life. Because it's not you getting it all together, having it all together, just doing it right, just going through the motions, just coming to church, just doing this and that. It's wrestling with God and experiencing great loss. Now, I want to say this as we close. I already told you, there's a greater than Jacob. And he wrestled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wrestled as he looked into the cup. How would that blessing come to us? How would we get the blessing of God by grace? Jesus would look into that cup of cursing, and he would wrestle with God. He would say, if it's possible, he wrestles with his father in the garden. If it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. And then he goes forward to Calvary, and he wrestles on the cross as not his hip, but the whole of his body is being marred under the wrath of his father, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, so that in you, all of those that come and wrestle with me by grace will have the blessing. Jesus secures that blessing. And you know what? When we look at Jesus for all eternity, he'll have the marks that he wrestled with God and prevailed. When he appeared to his disciples in the upper room, He said, look, it is me. See my hands and my feet and my side. There were marks that he had been marred, that there was cost in the Son of God wrestling. That is for our salvation. That is what enables us to wrestle with God and gain the blessing. I hope that you've done that. I hope that you are not dismissive of this. I hope that you don't think, well, yeah, that's nice. That's great. Let's get on with our day. I hope you go home and you wrestle with God. I really, my prayer is that we will wrestle in our souls And that we will know that he gives that blessing in Jesus Christ who wrestled for us with his father. And that we'll be able to say that we, like Jacob, swindlers though we are, have become princes of God in Jesus Christ. Part of the Israel of God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we need to wrestle with you and we need you to give us grace and strength to wrestle with you as you gave to Jacob, Lord, even when you could have destroyed him and and you gave him persevering grace to wrestle for the blessing and to cry out, I will not let you go until you bless me. And our, our Father, we pray that that would be the experience of every man and woman and boy and girl in this church and that it would be my experience. And Father, we pray that while we know there is great cost and loss and that you have to empty our hands, We are thankful that you fill them with everlasting blessings in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us that grace as you gave it to Jacob, that you would continue your work in us as you did in him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.